And welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author, Jim Tuohy, the author of To Love and Be Loved, A Personal Portrait of Mother Teresa, published by Simon & Schuster, and available naturally through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, for all things Catholic. Great to see you, Jim. Great to be with you, Doug. Uh, nice to have you for the first time uh, on this program through all these years. It's always interesting because in, anytime you hear Mother here on EWTN, you usually think it's Mother Angelica, but Mother Teresa is right up there, too, in our mind. Yep, and they had a lot in common, didn't they? Pioneering women, religious, that had to be very strong and right. persevering in their vision and what they lived. Well, it's interesting with this book because there's been a lot of books about Mother Teresa, picture, beautiful picture books and, you know, other books about, written about her. But you have a little bit of a different insight and a different take. How so with this book? Well, I wanted to capture the stories around her life that really showed how, how the woman behind the saint, you know, mm -hmm. from her sisters and those who knew her best. I had the privilege to work the last 12 years of her mm -hmm. life around her some, uh, did her legal work, did other things, and was able to watch her compassion in action, get to know the sisters of that initial group that she first mm -hmm. started out with in, in the 1948, and, and they had great stories, and I just felt like the church needs to right. capture and chronicle that marvelous woman that was, you know, grit and determination and, and how she became a saint, and because of her humanity, and not in spite of it. Right. Now, over that 12-year period, from the first time you, you, you met her and started to deal with her, too, till the end, how, did, how was she different or was she during that time period? Well, she aged, for sure. I mean, I met her the week she turned 75. She was a dynamo then. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was so alive. The first time I saw her, she just burst out like a schoolgirl, you know? So she had incredible focus and energy and wore us all out. But as she got into her 80s, and especially after repeated ailments, heart mm -hmm. attacks and such, uh, she started to right. slow down. And so she showed the same signs of aging that all of us mortals uh, are going to go through uh, at right. some point. Right, absolutely. The beginning of the book, you've got a, the quote from uh, Scripture Matthew, and the king will answer, I will tell you solemnly, insofar as you did this one <laughs> for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. I, it seems emblematic of her life, right? Right. It really animated her. I don't know that there were many times when she gave a public talk that she didn't uh, bring up that passage because it was very personal that that hungry person was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And she said in his distressing mm -hmm. disguise of the poorest of the poor, but clearly she saw this was, she took the words of Matthew's gospel very seriously. Mm -hmm. And uh, and she used to do the five finger, you did it to me. She would take people's hands in meetings. I'd watch her do this many times to really bring home the reality that uh, what we did with our hands and feeding the hungry and, the, and giving consolation to the sick was to Jesus himself. Right. In the beginning of the introduction, you start off with September 13, 1997, which was right around the time of her death, right? Why did you decide to start the book there? Well, I got to the funeral, and uh, it was in St. Thomas Church, and she was still laying in repose. Mm -hmm. I was a member of the U.S. delegation that went, that, that Mrs. Clinton had headed up. And we got into Calcutta at 1 in the morning, and I went straight to the church. And it was teeming with sisters uh, who wanted to be around Mother. And so uh, I thought it was a good place to start a, a recollection mm -hmm. of her life would be after her death. So I opened the book that way. You say, as I prayed in the early morning hours of September 13th, I was hounded by a simple question that had nagged me for some time. Why me? 
Why did I get to have this privileged relationship with Mother Teresa? I surely didn't deserve it. I know the sinner I was on that day I met her and how I felt that day helping the sick. Because one of the things interesting, you talk about, I think it was on your first visit in 1985, you thought you were going to get a tour. Right. But you ended up with a certain bed number you were told you were supposed to take care of, right? That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I got sent back there. I wouldn't have probably gone if I thought I was going to be put to work because mm -hmm. I didn't want to be around the poor. I certainly didn't want to touch the dying. But Mother had said that morning, go by my home for the dying and see Sister Luke. I thought it was for the tour. So yeah, it was an extraordinary transition for a sinner like me mm -hmm. to be around a saint like her in the beget to, in the first place and then to be uh, in her home for the dying and then accidentally find myself uh, caring for someone that was dying. So is your experience when, when you go and you're there and you, you see people like, like the sisters, like what mother's doing, do you see that it, it challenges your life because there's so, such a difference? Right. They in were your priorities, right? Yeah, they were everything I wasn't. They mm. were so purposeful. They were alive in Christ, living the gospel, you know. So to be around the missionaries of charity to this day is inspirational because they really are out there living the faith. And uh, that day in particular, I was watching them do work I would never in a million years wanted to do. Mm. You know, I didn't want to be around people that had scabies and try to clean them. You were as in politics, weren't you? Yeah, I was working for a U.S. Senator, Mark Hatfield, and and I just, I, I was too proud to admit to the sister I didn't want to clean the guy, so right. I went back there. So it was pride, really, that got me started, right. Doug. That, it, uh, pride is always involved with everything that goes on <laughs> for the good or the bad of it. Malcolm Mugridge, uh, you know, you talk about his famous uh, work, Something Beautiful for God. How did that impact you? Well, it was really my introduction to her, and I guess I wasn't alone. He really introduced Mother to the West right. when his book came out in the late 60s. And so uh, when I read the book, I just was in admiration of a woman that could go and do the kind of work she did and not only do it, but do it mm -hmm. cheerfully. Right. And, uh, and I would say evangelically because it was really making the gospel come alive to a hypocrite like me. There was a lot of uh, appeal to seeing someone living an authentic faith, you know. Well, you said I always called myself a Catholic. Religion was a life preserver that kept me afloat through turbulent childhood. You talk a little bit about your parents and growing up. But right before that, you say, but secretly I hoped, I guess when you were going to meet her, she would somehow heal me as Jesus healed the blind men. What did you need healing of? I needed to see life the way it is. I was blind, blind about my own uh, purposelessness. Uh, I was in search of the truth, you know, and until we can really encounter Jesus in the truth, uh, then we're living in our own world of illusions and dreams, and which is what I was in. I was, I had by all appearances a very successful life, but right. in fact it was very empty. Who was Jimmy and why did his death impact you so much? He was a close friend. I was best man in his wedding. He played basketball at Florida State University. We hung out together, did so much together. And then through, a, it's a long story, but he ended up uh, taking his own life. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the first person who died that was really close to me. And I also felt a lot of shame that I wasn't there for him when he needed me. And so that led me on a nine month journey of uh, regret and grieving. Mm -hmm. And then get to Calcutta 
and meet Mother Teresa, right. and it really started to reset my life. But you went through some period of time of blaming God and some heavy drinking in between, right? Yeah, I did. I was uh, I was just kind of lost. I, you know, I, it's actually a miracle I didn't get into more trouble in my life, uh, but I was sure looking for it. But like a lot of Catholics then, I was poorly catechized. I was not really in touch with uh, the gospel, mm -hmm. wasn't reading scripture, wasn't interested in what the church taught. I would pick and choose what I followed. Right. So because of that, I think it led to a really, uh, as I said, empty life. And I was, I was just very fortunate to meet mother. And, and so, yeah, it started a new life for me. So in that section, meeting mother, you talk <laughs> about a, a talk the priest gave, I don't know, it was the homily. Priest said, there are two types of people in the world, those who gather and those who give and every man must decide which he will be. Yeah, I kind of straddled these questions, you know. I was a giver in a very comfortable, reserved way uh, that I would tutor an inner city kid, but I wouldn't be around the poor, but I was mostly, it was a self-centered life. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all about me, self-absorbed, and uh, not that I'm uh, in any way like mother, but it did challenge me to be more honest about my life, to see myself for, what I was, but that also meant to see myself the way God saw me, which is made in the image and likeness of God, precious to God, and loved. And that really uh, introduced me to Mother Teresa's world where she said the greatest need of a human was to love and to be loved. Right. Now, it's interesting, too, because when you first met her, you had a reaction. You said, I realized she was everything I wasn't. She was focused, purposeful, cheerful. I was struck by how fully alive she seemed. You know, it seems like that, that cheerfulness and you talk about it throughout and the joy throughout is probably the most surprising aspect of their life for most people right that's right because you think how can you be working with lepers and the dying and the destitute the disabled and uh, and still be so cheerful about it but they really they were loving Christ in the work that they did and it was a reflection of an inner mm -hmm. life that these sisters have the fathers the brothers uh, remarkable how they really connect the Eucharist with the broken bodies of the poor, right. you know, and so I really felt uh, that they were teaching me my faith over. I, you know, I was in the Catholic school system, K through 12, right. but this was the Simon and Garfunkel years. <laughs> right. <And> so, uh, <laughs> Bridge over troubled water. Yeah, that, <laughs> course, literally, yeah. I, I watched the sisters' habits change from seventh grade to eighth grade. Absolutely. Right. And all of a sudden, they were hiked up, and their hair's back, and their names changed. Yeah, too. Yeah, names right. changed, changed the whole right. deal right. in school. So it was quite a a transition for an eighth grader to navigate, and the high schools were out of control, the Catholic study. So for me, uh, I started my right. earnestness after I met Mother. That's why I said in the book that it was kind of before Mother and after Mother that was the line of demarcation for me. Right. It's interesting, too, because uh, though she had an impact on you, you were thrilled to get out of Calcutta, right? Absolutely. I couldn't get out of there quickly enough because it wasn't like I heard an angelic choir when I went back to bed 46, as I described in the book. But when I got to Hawaii, uh, I was equally uncomfortable there because I was watching them water the lawns where I had just seen people desperate for water to drink. Right. And so uh, it was a, it was the contrast was overwhelming. So right. I wasn't as happy in Hawaii as I thought I'd be. Well, I like you say the plump pineapples decoration on the front desk at my fancy hotel was healthier than the people I had left behind in the Calcutta streets. Right. Yeah, it was just dramatic to, to be in a world in the West where uh, you saw such prosperity, but of course, then Mother introduced me to spiritual poverty, and it's right. in a face that was different that I had not even thought about or seen. 
Now, she had asked you or you decided to visit her sisters in Washington when you came back? You kind of told her you would do that? Yeah, I did. I figured if I told her I would go sail, I didn't even know they were in Washington, but mm -hmm. I thought if I told mother that I was going to do it and I didn't do it, I'd get struck by lightning at some point. So I did go back and tell the sisters hello and then they recruited me right away. Right, you, you talk about spiritual poverty, the, the line, we must free ourselves to be filled by God. Even God cannot fill what is full. You said, I could feel a sister setting a new trajectory from my, my, life, my life, and I liked where I was heading. How did they change your trajectory? They helped me take my mind off myself and put it on others, mm -hmm. and they helped me put it on Jesus. And uh, it was really a starting over. And they were so alive in their faith, and they were so uh, just giving until it hurt, as Mother said. So that quote that you cited about God can't fill what is full of mothers, uh, for me, was uh, a realization that I was so full of myself. And, uh, and it's a fight we all have to this day, you know, to not be self-centered and be so consumed with your own affairs. So Mother was always redirecting your eyes to the poor. Right, in, in chapter 5, even Jesus could not pick 12 good disciples. Was that reference, that was Mother Teresa's line, was that you talking about yourself there in a sense? No, it was actually in, <laughs> in response to when I had, I was uh, upset about a meeting we were in where I felt like uh, someone had lied to her and I okay. came out of it and, and it was an ordained man and I just said, uh, you know, Mother, I was, uh, that person lied to you, and she crossed her, she did the sign of the cross mm -hmm. on her lips, which was her way of saying, stop talking, right. uncharitably, but then she, but I, my Irish was all up, <laughs> right. I was mad, because it was a meeting that I knew what was right, and that wasn't right, and I, but then Mother just walked in, she goes, you know, even Jesus couldn't pick 12 good I disciples, see. which has helped me navigate all these years of the church's problems. Right and the scandals and such that, right. yes, it is in many ways a broken institution. Yeah, about 16 and a half percent, you got to figure, uh, one out of 12 was a problem, so you can <laughs> kind of gauge that. Uh, now, in addition to the MC Sisters and Brothers 1984, Mother founded the Fathers uh, with a Father Joseph Langford. You don't hear as much about them. No, you don't. They're, they're relatively small in number. Mm -hmm. There's probably 50 or 60 of them that are ordained. I was just with the, the MC Fathers in Kenya, mm. and they have a large formation program there, so they're slowly getting traction, but they, they help the sisters, but Father Joseph Langford, Father Brian, right. Father Gary, the three that founded the Fathers, Mother loved them, and she saw the need for priests to help with her sisters, but also to speak of the I-thirst spirituality that was entrusted to her. Who were the Kumars, and why were they the uh, private <coughs> residence Mother would stay at? Mother met the Kumars back, he was a big hero in Wimbledon for India, oh, okay. and, and he just passed away recently. Sunita, his wife, is still alive, and she's uh, remarkable and, uh, to this day, but initially just the wealthy family, mother meets them, and they become kind of a, a shelter for her in Calcutta, helped her navigate the ways of Calcutta, and, uh, and then they became very close friends, and ultimately mother took the Kumars to meet Pope John Paul II. Right. You have a chapter entitled, A Born Entrepreneur. One of the things I learned was that Mother Teresa was a born entrepreneur, an aspect of her genius that is usually overlooked. Sometimes it's used against her. People say, well, you know, she was working the system. Yeah, people want to make out to be worldly. In reality, the missionaries of charity grew one house, one at a time. Uh, you know, Mother didn't leave India for the first uh, 15 years of, her, of the missionaries of charity's life. She herself didn't leave mm -hmm. India until 1960, so she was there 30 years. 
So it wasn't like she was out globe trotting, but her genius in building these houses and then these network after she went to Venezuela in 1965 and then expanded mm -hmm. by the time of her death 120 countries she built all of this right. very organically and uh, I would say masterfully right. and how she did it without computers or any of the sophistication that multinational corporations have. Right. Now you started doing what? <clears throat> pro bono work as a lawyer for her and that's how you started to get involved at least in, in working with her or for her? That's right. She needed someone to help her sisters navigate immigration issues. She needed help on protecting her name. People were using it to raise money. Right. She prohibited fundraising, which was ingenious, I think, but she just said she preferred the insecurity of divine providence, which was a remarkable statement. Well, the, the Washington Post, Mother Teresa, one of the world's living legends for the first time ever, authorized her portrait to be reproduced in a special collector's <laughs> edition lithographic print, but apparently she never authorized it. She didn't. That was a scam, and I uh, had to go out there and get that settled. And yeah, people tried to raise uh, money using her name. She also was opening a lot of homes for people with AIDS, and that was complicated right. because these mayors didn't want them. It created headaches in neighborhoods. Nobody wanted an AIDS Especially home. your great story in San Francisco. Yeah. Where yeah. she basically is doing all this stuff, and they decide, well, we can't have all these trappings, and you can't bring food from outside, and That's all right. these regulations. And she had a great response, right? Yeah. Her response was, well, then we'll close the house, and she called their bluff. Right. So she was you very. You come and pick up the people yeah, we're taking care of. Right? She wasn't playing them. She just simply said, "I'm not going to compromise what I believe," which, of course, Mother Angelica lived by. Right. People that are of strong faith aren't going to be, aren't going to budge when they're pushed right. by the ways of the world. And now this was a great product here, Mother Teresa breath mist. <laughs> you list that as one of the funny ones, yeah, right? Yeah, to banish the demons of uh, bad breath. Yeah, they they started to sell that. You had the nun bun. You had a lot of stories of, of funny things, but right. then there were some serious ones where people really shamelessly using her name to make money. Right. Now, you are one of the few people I know who probably had a, a business letter or a job application helped by her writing a letter, uh, originally thinking to the president, George Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush, but ultimately to Sununu, who was the chief of staff, I think. Right. right. Yeah. Mother... I went to Calcutta after I discerned that I wasn't going to become a priest, mm -hmm. and I went there uh, thinking I was staying indefinitely, but she basically felt like I didn't belong there, and after a week she's kicking me out of Calcutta and sending me with this letter that she came up with, uh, and then of course it did not lead to a job, but no. she said, I think you should bring Jesus to the White House. Well, I didn't work for George H.W. Bush, but then I did end right. up working for George W. Bush, so I guess mother's... A uh, sense of what I should be doing was ultimately realized. Prophetic, so, in a yeah, sense. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. But like all of God's timing, right? It's yeah. always a little different than our own. Happened after her death, yeah. Mother of Outcast, I thought uh, the biggest disease is not leprosy or TB, it's loneliness. It's being rejected. It is forgetting joy, love, and the human touch. Mother Teresa, I would think we see that in spades today, right. in, a, in a sense, with the suicide rate and the disconnection of people post-COVID and kind of the virtual reality world we live in. That's right. She, she said that the worst disease wasn't leprosy or AIDS. It was loneliness. And that was that introduction to spiritual poverty that she saw so pervasive in the West. I remember driving around Washington one time when she said, your poor is so hard to reach here because she could give them food in the soup kitchen, but that gnawing sense they felt of rejection, of being unwanted, unwelcome in the world, she saw that poverty was very painful, and of course she spent her lifetime trying to abate it.
One of the things you talk about in a human heart, you say, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, according to her, this understanding, Mother Teresa was the most human of women. And you go on, I know, later in the book and talk about the fact that everybody had their shortcomings. Right. And she really was a Mary-like figure. I, I felt like she was the most Mary-like person since Mary because as virgin and mother to the world, she really had a an ability to love and mother people, even mm -hmm. Princess Diana, or the different characters that were brought into her life. Right. She really was a mother to them, and uh, that was that was at the heart, I think, of her appeal in right. the world. Yes, uh, and in that section you also say, Mother was a champion of the right to life. She felt that to be pro-poor and pro-life were one in the same, and that's, why do you think there's so much an attempt many times to try and separate that, especially here in the United States? Oh, I think it's because it makes people uncomfortable, the abortion issue, but mm -hmm. Mother Teresa felt it was the greatest destroyer of peace in the world. She also opened homes for pregnant women, and she had homes for adoption, and so she was truly, I think, she saw the same Christ in the womb as she saw at the end of life. Mm -hmm. She opposed euthanasia, assisted suicide, which I really think is a great danger as we look at what's out on the horizon right now as America ages. Mm -hmm. So Mother Teresa was unashamedly pro-life and pro-poor and uh, and lived that gospel. You also uh, honestly had a chap chapter 11 answering the critics, uh, don't let sin make you sin, similar to her putting her finger <laughs> right, crossing her. The idea you say how she developed a thick skin, typical example was feminist Jermaine Greer, now there, there's a name from the past, criticizing the mother's anti-abortion views in response to the plight of rape victims in Bangladesh in the 1970s yeah. who had become Pregnant, isn't it interesting that we're still talking about Mother Teresa, but you don't really hear much about Jermaine Greer, right? Well, yeah, and I think Mother was on the side of history and and what's true today about we've seen what's happened with the abortion culture, and we've seen what Pope John Paul II described as the culture of death and its ugly effects in people's lives, broken families. So, yeah, I think Mother Teresa was on the right side of the issue, mm -hmm. and, and I think she also the critics that went after her, like Christopher Hitchens, right. I wanted to have a 5,000-word chapter to rebut all the nonsense right. that's on the Internet now because people just fling accusations that aren't true or that are half true. And Hitchens was a masterful uh, provocateur. Right. And so he was constantly using half-truths to discredit Mother Teresa, and it was unfortunate. Well, we assume Christopher now knows the truth. Yeah, he was an atheist, and right. God knows whether it is deathbed he came around. but. Uh, uh, he was certainly an individual that had a lot of imitators after he died, right. you know, that, that were going after Mother to try to boost their own brand, I guess. Right, actually, and, and, <laughs> and goodness need, needs to be destroyed. Right, and the it, church's voice needs right. to be hampered. Right. They right. want to go after someone like Mother to go after the church. It's very uncomfortable. Right. next to it, as you experienced yourself when you were first went over there, right, in a sense. You talk about the darkness is in light. You're honest about that. You, the weight of her cross, though, included suffering that she did not choose, trials that were imposed on her by God. For in addition to the many physical, mental, and emotional burdens she carried as head of the missionary order, Mother endured nearly five decades of punishing spiritual pain. It nearly suffocated her soul. That's where people go, Here's somebody who's so good and doing so much work, and, and why would God make her suffer like that? Right. Uh, it was it was a shock to all of us, Doug, when we found out after her death that she had had this desert experience interiorly. We thought actually she was getting the opposite. We thought as hard as she worked, she got up at 4.40 every day. She was up until midnight mm -hmm. answering correspondence. She was always the first up, last down in the mother house. 
we thought she was getting spiritual consolations that the rest of us mortals don't get. To find out that the opposite was true made me love her even more. But it was a shock, but I think the Lord allowed her right. to feel that experience of being forsaken and abandoned, which helped her, I think, understand the plight of the poor. I see. That she was going right. to, the, to their dark holes as the visions of Jesus described. So I do think that she, she uh, has a lot to teach the 21st century about depression, despair, anguish, anxiety, because she experienced these things and she overcame them by holding tight to the hand of God. Right, and, and in our closing moment here, saying goodbye, it was, a, uh, so you talk about the fact that Mother said, of all the honors and recognition she experienced in her life, none meant more to her than the fact that the successor to St. Peter personally cared so much about her, and that's uh, St. John Paul II, right? Yeah, she went back to Rome uh, to present her successor to the Pope. Uh, she wanted, it was like closure for her, mm -hmm. and she almost died on the flight to Rome. I tell the whole story, as well as her last day mm -hmm. on earth, what that was like, because that hasn't been published before, oh, okay. uh, the great detail of how that went. But yeah, she went to see John Paul II because she loved him so much. Uh, they were such close friends, so spiritually connected. I think the church is going to talk about those two saints the way we'll hear of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and some of the other great pairings of men and women that mm -hmm. the church raised up, I think, to help lead us during right. turbulent times. So yeah, that friendship, his visit to Kali got the home for the dying meant the world to her. Right, how long did it take you to write the book? Oh, 25 years, Okay. you know, thinking about it a long time, but then when COVID hit and the world shut down, okay. I finally had my window to, to write it, and then Simon Schuster was great to publish it, and. Uh, and Aging with Dignity is happy to promote right. it because we do feel these aging issues are going to take on a new life Absolutely. as we go forward. Yeah, euthanasia and, of course, the 25th anniversary from September when the book originally came out. Okay, very good. To Love and Be Loved, a personal portrait of Mother Teresa by author Jim Tilley. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for coming by. Available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. Pick it up, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. We'll see you next time right here on Bookmark. Thanks.